Bungacast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe. Hello. Hey, how's it going? George Hoare. Hello. Hi. And myself, Alex Hokuli. Hello. Today we are coming to you uh, into your ears via a digitally mediated platform, uh, as so much of what we receive these days. So appropriately, we're going to be discussing uh, tech, the app economy, and probably focusing a little bit more narrowly on delivery apps and how they've changed uh, the landscape, uh, possibly the physical landscape, and also how uh, we consume and as well, and perhaps most importantly, how we work. Um, Now, um, I want to maybe start off by asking, you know, do you guys avail yourselves of this degenerate convenience of getting food delivered straight to your door rather than going out to a restaurant where you might meet other people or even or even call someone up? And you have a menu in hand and you call them up and you say, hello, I would like to have two pizzas. And they say, well, what would what would you like? And you say, blah, 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 blah. And you give your order and you have an interaction with another human rather than just bleep, bleep, bleep on your phone. Um, do, oh, you, do you do have this? an interaction when the delivery driver comes to the door, right? So, um, yeah, I do. So, um, I mean, so one of the pieces listeners will see in the show notes is a piece in Compact where it kind of... Um, piece from Compact about delivery apps, and it makes all these kind of side swipes against the convenience and, you know, that it's kind of a surrender to kind of luxuriate in your privacy and domesticity at home rather than make the effort of going to a restaurant and interacting with people, as kind of Alex was indicating in his introductory remarks. But no, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be said for, um, you know, for convenience. I mean, uh, why not? And though it did make me think, I was thinking about this before we... so. Because, you know, so the kind of thing I tend to order on the delivery apps, and this is obviously excluding Amazon, but the food delivery apps specifically, the kind of thing I tend to order is um, fast food or maybe like, you know, maybe like a curry. But I wouldn't say if I wanted like a good like, you know, Italian, I would go out to, you know, kind of I'd go out to my local, the Italian, local Italian that I like. I won't like order, you know, a high quality pizza or a high quality pasta. I won't order that um you know, through a delivery app or whatever the equivalent is, wherever anybody happens to be. Yeah, the experience is a little bit, a little bit mediocre when you have like proper restaurant food at home. You know, you wouldn't have like sushi delivered, I think. I've had sushi delivered. Why would you not have sushi delivered? I mean, it, you could even argue it's one of the best things to have delivered because it's not hot to start with. So it would survive the journey particularly well. Yeah, Alex, I mean, a, I mean, George has a point there. Yeah, you, I mean, you're gonna have moist. So, you're gonna have soggy seaweed. You're gonna have soggy seaweed, um, and you don't want that anyway. Okay, well, you can start your own soggy seaweed, um, <clears throat> just uh, delivery only restaurant if you if you want. I don't know how the the denizens of Sao Paulo would re- respond to that, but no, I mean, do I use these um, apps? Yeah, definitely. Like Deliveroo, Just Eat. Um, yeah, I mean, if you can't be if you can't be bothered to cook, if you've had a long day at work, I'm not sure that I'm. I have such a um, a highbrow approach as Phil. Sometimes it's you know hungover McDonald's. Sometimes it's a pizza. It's you know it's anything that 
that catches my fancy. You know, sometimes you look through the the delivery, the the just. Oh, you can't app, tell me you're going to do a gammon, George, on this question of like it's... now apps. Like there's a highbrow approach to delivery, food delivery yeah. apps, and a lowbrow approach. What highbrow approach? There is no highbrow approach. I just said like convenient fast food. That's the point. You can't uh, you can't order gammon on these. I mean, it's reduced. Um, it's all. Object. It feels right. It's all reduced. Uh, it's all reduced to the same thing. In fact, that's one of the notable things about it that you can order simultaneously if you wanted uh, a little jar of caviar with your McDonald's French fries, whatever. Um, you know, okay. like it, it does actually homogenize the, the the experience. It flattens it. If I, I don't know, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, you can get pizza, which is quite flat, but you can get other sorts of food. Anyway, what I was going to say is that I think the actual scrolling through of the app it does show you like a window into abundance it you know the the commodity has a shard of utopia and you can go through this and you can see the products of distant climes although all produced in your local area and you can you know you can choose anything you don't have to be constrained by traveling this way and then you can only have this restaurants or that way and you can only have some others you know there is something which is quite um dizzying and <laughs> utopian almost about these about these apps. I mean, this isn't the reason that I use them. I use them because, you know, I had a long day at work and just like, I can't be, you know, can't be bothered to cook. So yeah, yeah I mean, indeed, I, yeah. I do use them definitely. I mean, so here's a question though. If we were, you know, critical of uh, the pandemic management and lockdown for allowing, you know, the quote unquote laptop class to live comfortably with convenience, having food, restaurant food even, you know, delivered to them instantaneously with little social friction, little social interaction. Um, and that that was problematic because it meant living in a bubble. Why are we also okay with uses of these apps? Isn't that isn't there a contradiction? No, but there? we weren't but the argument against the Zoom kind of working from home Zoom classes isn't that they have, you know, that social friction is, you know, necessarily a good thing. It's that it's it became, you know, by virtue of state diktat, it became kind of something which was enforced on one part of or the subservience was kind of enforced on one part of the population as against another. The idea that having kind of the convenience of um, a wider range of food delivered, you know, that doesn't seem to me that there's anything in principle, you know, I mean, what is kind of, you know, what is so objectionable about that? I struggle to see it. And look, like you say, right, it's no different from the old fashioned delivery. Except instead of like looking through, you know, loads of kind of Chinese takeaway flyers and whatever, it's the convenience of having it all on the phone and you choose it very easily and you pay with it directly. You know, so all of that just seems to basically make more convenient and to streamline processes that were already in place. Essentially, that's what it does. But I mean, isn't the isn't the, in the subservience enforced as well that there's a class of people who can afford to order via apps and a class of people who maybe can only infrequently well, let's not get carried away here. That. Let's not get carried. Well, look, I mean, then you're just saying yeah, there's people who are poor and people who are less poor. I mean, that's true, right? And that's nothing to do with whether or not there's the existence of um, delivery apps, right? And let's not get carried away into uh, making out as if the um, you know food that's delivered through these delivery apps is like. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, that it's all so kind of fancy and um, that it's out of the reach of ordinary common folk who can't afford it. Yeah, George. I mean, I think there is a bit of a tendency to kind of lean into a like an ethical consumption, like pose of anti, like a restaurant consumption, good, delivery consumption, bad. I mean, it's not, it is a bit more complicated than that. And I think the, 
you know, these apps only formalize or not formalize, but like they take to the next step, something that's already there. Like, I think it's, it is surprising how they're touted as one of these technological achievements when it really is just, instead of having like multiple <laughs> delivery pam- uh, pamphlets or, or like uh, menus, you now have your phone. It's like, it's not qualitatively different to just choosing whether you phone up this number or that number. And yes, you do have, you don't have to talk to somebody. I mean, that may or may not be a great, um, a great uh, step forward. Um, but ultimately I don't think it really changes very much. Um, it's just like, yeah, one, one place to have all of these different bits of food rather than spread across a number of different menus. So uh, lest you listener think we're just going to be talking about our own uh, experiences or even appreciation for food delivery and other delivery apps and so on, um, and how we gleefully participate in this and how it's all about the same as it always was and nothing changes, we're going to get into the meaty substantive questions um, regarding the way these apps work, labor questions, uh, the uh, long-term sustainability of these business models, um, and whether everything is going to become techified in the future. So we're going to get to that. Um, but just to dwell on on these kind of more immediate questions, or at, at any rate, maybe more sociological questions, a, a question about convenience, I think, which we should discuss and, and lay that out um, plainly. Because um, a lot of the, some of the criticism of the delivery app economy, such as it is, um, or such as criticism exists, because I think there probably is uh, probably not enough discussion about um, about this issue because it has um, become so prevalent uh, everywhere, both in terms of as a means of consuming, but also in terms of changing the way that uh, food is produced and, and shifted around and whatever, as well as our, uh, at a maybe perhaps deeper level, um, as I've mentioned how we work, of course, but at a deeper level, also um, how we expect to consume and how we expect to have uh, how we expect to have things and whether and I think the question here um, to be to be more pointed about it is does that experience of convenience through delivery apps lead us to uh, have a certain worldview in which we expect everything to be as seamless and um, you know seamless and convenient and frictionless um, which might bear with it some political problems because if you don't want to ever yeah. lose that sense of convenience what else are you not willing to lose um, what else are you not willing to sacrifice for some for a different sort of society for example yeah i think it's not so much that the delivery apps bring this into being but there's a prior um what adam greenfield in his book radical technologies calls an ideology of ease that basically this is the way that consumption is most promoted it's like the, the thing that you want to have the like the least possible amount of is friction anything which is inconvenient is bad so this is how everyday technologies from the smartphone through all the apps, through like everything is designed. Like, do you have this headache of having to like, you know, give, you can imagine the kind of the, the, the video of the person picking up the delivery pamphlets and giving themselves a paper cut and like, oh, oh, how inconvenient is this? And then it cuts to somebody and they just get their phone and they're smiling and they kind of scroll through delivery and then they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to have this thing or that thing. But it's like, well, it's very successful. This ideology of ease is very built into the way that technologies, um, are designed and it's you know it may it certainly has some political consequences but i don't think it's the delivery apps that bring this into being i think it's just that they reflect this prior and pretty successful kind of design principle what's wrong what's wrong with these i mean i still don't see the point is like mm. i don't you know i don't see that i mean okay so 
delivery apps might kind of, you know, lead to a restructuring of, um, you know, food processing and the restaurant sector and the food sector and so on. I mean, that's probably already happened. I mean, I remember in the during the pandemic, there were some great studies actually of what was happening to chain restaurants as they responded to the demand, right? But that aside, you know, like I don't see that there is some, um, you know, like as if people are going to totally abandon going to restaurants because they occasionally have the added convenience of being able to order a delivery through their phone. And what's wrong with these? You know, well, like, I, I, should life be think, hard? And I mean, is that the is that the point? I think I think no, but I guess it's you know obviously any you know political struggle or that or any even the attempt to um, radically change society for the better would require um, the you know certain forms of certain dislocation and certain changes to the way that we organize our lives, right? And I guess one of the questions so just to take a kind of more stupefied more even, by the delivery apps that we're not going to launch a revolution is that the argument? Well, not so much that, but more that for example, um, these apps rely on there being suppressed wages, wages which have been suppressed for forty years, um, so that people will. Um, effectively be poor enough to work to go and do delivery from door to door if that isn't if that weren't to be the case and wages were to rise that would withdraw the possibility even of there being these sorts of delivery services right i'm not just sure to that's take true. this specific example um it, it would be unaffordable and then sure what do you say true. well repress wages because i want to keep uh retain access to uh to you know delivery and it that you know there's a whole suite follows... there's a whole suite of services which exist in this economy because of repressed wages, right? Because there hasn't been a wage growth for, for 40 years. No, I mean, I don't think that there is a, I don't think you could say that this industry, this industry is an artifact or this kind of particular, um, you know, kind of technology. It's an artifact of some things, but I don't think it necessarily follows that it must always be a, um, associated with low wages or that if you saw i mean you already are anyway right we're seeing kind of um wages begin to crawl up in the advanced economies as a result of any number of factors um but it doesn't seem to me to be choking off you know kind of the um the apps right well it is um but we'll come to that is in it a second. where um the, well i mean i wanted to know, yeah go, go ahead george i wanted to just say something on the ideology of ease or like is it like inconvenience isn't that bad in many cases like it if if the only like dimension that you have is whether something is easier or more difficult this is not a, a, a you know this is not the way to live the good life some things are difficult and rewarding and you want occasionally to to push yourself into outside of your comfort zone into a different zone a zone of of, of proximal development or a zone of growth or a zone of whatever i mean if you just do the thing that is easiest all the time you know wh where's that going to lead you you're not going to be trying to read difficult books or, or listen to challenging podcasts or or try new food are you you're just going to be having your same fast food from your delivery app all the time phil are so you being are you being just, are you being sarcastic or genuine it's hard to tell with the tone in your voice true. I mean, you should know by now I'm being serious when I sound like I'm not being serious. I mean, it is something, there is something in this, right? That if you just, if everything is like, what is the easiest way to do something? There are certain efficiencies which you're going to get, but that shouldn't be your, like, your single moral dimension. Um, yeah. No, I, I think I that applies that. more yeah. widely than, than food. Um, I'm not, like, you don't want the easiest making... food. Sometimes you want to cook something that is more difficult, but is tastier, for example. 
Fine. Uh, obviously, nobody is arguing that people should be stopped from cooking food or going to nice restaurants for a date or a family occasion or whatever it might be, right? Um, I may, you know, it's a very basic point to know, and also that um, the benefits of technological convenience and ease that they're available to, you know, um, ordinary consumers, that seems to me to be an indisputable, you know, an indisputable good. And I'm not, you know, and I, we'd be patronizing, it seems to me, to um, the assumption that simply by virtue of its existence, that everyone is going to thus become kind of um, a slothful, you know, slothful, dependent um, vegetable um, living off it. Now, there was like we'll a stop, meme, actually. We'll stop reading Shakespeare because it's too difficult. Well, this is what you want. This is the future you want, Phil. I mean, if no, that's, so there that's was, I think it, there is. Fine. But I think I know. I mean, obviously, you're being sarcastic now, George. But the um, I think the point there was a good meme, um, which came out in the um, during the lockdown, which had like somebody um, kind of absorbed in their phone, and then surrounded by all these kind of ghostly figures of all the various kind of workers and laborers that were needed to sustain them in their little kind of private sphere. Um, while they're on their phone um, and, you know, and it had kind of people at their feet and people kind of servicing them to indicate that the possibility of kind of working from home and living at home on the conditions of lockdown was, you know, that it required a tremendous kind of orchestration of effort and a great deal of, you know, subordination and hierarchy in terms of um, a division of labor. So I think there are two, you know, that is true. Right, but that's not a specific effect of this technology. That is the, you know, it's the consequence of a certain kind, you know, of capitalist society. I see. I, I, I think there is a, and we're going to come into into this, but there has been a restructuring of labor relations, um, which has come along with this app economy, the which I think is market. important to bear in mind. Just before, there's but a restructuring before, of the labor market. I think I'd say rather than labor relations, it's not as if subservience and hierarchy didn't exist before delivery. No, not in and of itself, but it, just to say one, one, and this is kind of an aside, but, you know, it's notable that uh, I'm just going to quote something, then I'll tell you where it's from. Even the most zealous socialists still have personal preferences, which movies to watch on Netflix, where to go out and eat via Uber or Lyft. Millennials would not be willing to sacrifice their real world lifestyles for the utopian promises of Marxism. Now, that is um, from a piece as to why millennials will reject socialism um, on a site called the Austrian Center, which is a, a kind of hardcore Austrian economics neoliberal website. But I think it's I think it's it's interesting to note, I guess, that um, you know the the economic right is um, arguing, you know, feels that basically this ideology of convenience, even however forever how for however misguided their understanding of Marxism and communism might be, they believe that basically millennials um, are too, you know, wedded to their conveniences, uh, that they that they would not be willing to make the sacrifices necessary for a grander political project. It's odd. I mean, so, you know, you, I mean, you showed us to this, Alex, before we started the chat. I th it's a really odd formulation on so many levels. I mean, I think even from the viewpoint of Austrian economics. So it's trying to make a point about revealed preferences, like what's important is how people behave and what you can infer from that behavior rather than what people say. You know, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that insight. Um, but then leaping to that to say that, you know, this shows that millennials, I mean, I think there's lots of, I mean, you know, given the fact that I have to work with millennials like you guys, there's lots of reasons, obviously, to be down on millennials, and I'm happy to do it. But the idea that this is, 
indicates their in a you know their laziness and inability it's a weird conflation of um kind of a critique of decadence which you think the austrians would be against with an endorsement of a particular kind of technology um you know it's very odd and also like you know it kind of um it seems to feed into all the critiques you could make of these kinds of of this kind of labor right because it assumes like this lazy pa- i mean basically they're saying there is a lazy parasitic class that doesn't produce and that is served and therefore we're safe from socialism because we're dependent on the whim of this lazy caste of consumers but it's just so there's so many it's such a roundabout way of making a defense of capitalism from an austrian viewpoint you know anyway i find it very odd but um you know listeners can go and take a look at it and see what they um you know see what they think what do you think, George? Yeah, I mean, I think there is something about this. Um, it's a strange, yeah, a strange formulation. It seems like a strange website. And there are other strange passages that Alex um, shared at least one of with us as well. The I think maybe what they're trying to hint at is that this these delivery apps, they give you the whole market in one place. And maybe that's why they like them, because it's a representation, you know, that, that the... the um, millennial socialist wearing their Che Guevara t-shirt or whatever it would be is directly interfacing with the with the market um <clears throat> and the market has come to them come to their home so maybe this is what the uh what the Austrians or the the post-Austrians like about this um about these these delivery apps potentially but that's that's um giving them probably a bit more credit than than is due because I think that it was a strange <laughs> as I said that that word a few times um yeah, seemed like a, a strange article. So the Austria, I mean, the Austrian point, right, is that this is um, people, you know, the millennials' dependence on these unconvenient apps indicates is in contrast with their consumerist kind of outlook on Marxism. So it's a Che Guevara t- guy in a Che Guevara t-shirt who's like, you know, kind of relying on Lyft and Uber and Deliveroo and whatever. And so there's a contradiction there. And actually, they're more committed to capitalism and consumer capitalism than they are to their you know, professed political ideas. Um, that might be true, right? But I don't think, I mean, it doesn't really, you know, then from that, they make the claim that this is why, you know, kind of um, we can be safe. But it doesn't, you know, the two things don't seem to me to follow because it seems to me like the socialist response is not to... Um, is not to kind of refute the ease and benefit, limited as they are, but nonetheless genuine, I think, that come, some of it that comes with the new technology, but rather that, you know, I mean, the right response would be to say, um, you know, that uh, better legal protections and labor organization in the sector would be beneficial for um, for workers in that sector, right? And that there is, and in fact, that the idea what is cast as economic freedom um, as you know, the kind of idea that uh, all these kind of uh, delivery riders zipping around on uh, at the same time as they have all these other jobs allows them to kind of supplement their income and earn more than they otherwise would. That that is, you know, um, a myth in fact, and doesn't correspond to economic freedom, but economic subservience and dependence. That seems to me it would be a better response than simply kind of um, suggesting that a, an authentic socialist would. Um, kind of stop ordering food on delivery, get off the couch and uh, jump into the street demo. Rabat ou Panama, la base 
So one of the notable things about the app economy more generally, and specifically the delivery apps, is that they don't work, which is to say they um, repress wages for delivery drivers. Um, the convenience that they bring, okay, that's up to you to decide um, whether you as a consumer like that. Um, but they do um, wear down restaurants um, they, they and kind of distort restaurants' own business models. And perhaps most importantly, uh, is that they are not profitable. Um, and it's much like Uber um, and Lyft and companies like that as well, um, where a lot of uh, money has been pumped into them. Uh, revenues increase because people start using them, um, but they nevertheless continue to make losses. And they keep doing that until presumably um, they're sold off in an IPO and the original funders and investors um, get paid um, and they let, let leave uh, some other suckers holding the bag. Um, and so, you know, just these are these figures aren't the newest ones, but, you know, DoorDash lost $450 million um, off of $900 million in revenue in 2019. Uber Eats lost $460 million um, in the quarter four 2019 revenue out of $734 million uh, in, in revenue. And that's Uber's most profitable division. So this gives a sense of the scale of how this might have changed a little bit with the pandemic, um, and they might be a little bit more profitable. Um, but I, I know that Uber Eats recently withdrew from Brazil, and it was the biggest competitor to iFood, which is the the, the big one here. Um, so I, it's it's a question about how profitable these things are, um, and it seems to me that their yeah, main the same purpose, with delivery like, as well, like, hasn't like with Uber, is that they're a battering ram against labor rights and against the old um, the old businesses, whether it's taxis or restaurants. See, I don't think that's um, right to, to get a piece. To get a piece I of don't think action. that's. I don't think that's right. I don't think they're battering grams exactly. Um, I think so. I think Uber might be an exception in that regard. So, because the business, as far as I understand from what I've read, the business model of Uber was that they would kind of use cheap money that they got from borrowing and from venture capital and so on to undercut existing cabbies basically in major urban centers. And once they dominated the market and they'd introduced kind of um, and they'd introduced self-driving cars, they would basically have this essentially permanent monopoly. And it would be then like basically, you know, kind of guaranteed money and rent in the future. So, but that, so that was a battering ram to break into the, you know, the kind of um, local cab markets around major urban cities. That doesn't seem to me to be the case with delivery though, right? And I don't know that, you know, and if it's putting, you know, if restaurants, the restaurant sector is kind of being forced to adapt to, this kind of, you know, what the apps are, the effect of the apps, that doesn't seem, you know, I mean, I mean, it doesn't seem to me like a matter for condemnation or um, or celebration one way or the other, you know, like different segments of the market, capitalist market will evolve in different ways. It just, you know, it is the way it is. It's not as if restaurants are more entitled to, um, you know, kind of being insulated from these kinds of competitive pressures than any other section of a capitalist economy. So, I'm not quite sure they are battering grams, apart with the possible exception of Uber. Um, I think I probably tend to agree with Alex. If there is any, like, what are the like the the bigger goals of these delivery apps? It seems like there are two. One is destroying restaurants. So the idea being that if you were to destroy all the restaurants and to reduce them to <clears throat> um, kind of non uh, eat in, but just like food producing distribution centers. This would shift a massive um, amount of people's disposable income to um, to delivery apps. I mean, this isn't entirely possible um, because you no, would imagine there's always going to be the some model, restaurants. 
but no, but the model it, isn't based on eliminating restaurants. It's an attempt to change the market, but it's not an attempt to eliminate the sector, which is what Uber was, right? So Uber was designed to drive kind of cabs out of it was designed to drive cabs out of the market whereas Deliveroo isn't say isn't premised on the idea that or Uber Eats isn't premised on the idea that no one is ever going to go to a restaurant again I mean that would be well, but, but it's quite no but it's a work. question of Thank it's you. a question of it's a question of margins it's true that maybe uh, Uber didn't want Uber did intend to completely supplant taxis where but uh, but I think the evidence shows that the entry of these apps into the restaurant business have very much distorted restaurants own businesses um, that they get rather ripped off from that and also even just as a consumer you end up going to a restaurant and it takes much longer to get the food uh, and what they produce is made much more for delivery so it kind of warps um the previous yeah, existing so, economy so um, and, and, then, that... and then there's sorry and then there's the, the 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 other the point about labor which is that it relies on and pushes towards greater informalization of of labor yeah, so I don't know that it was. I mean, the point is though, like it's um, you're already dealing with. You know, it's partly an effect of uh, the fragmentation of the labor market, so that you have the kind of the two tiered labor market where you have older workers in kind of more secure professions that will tend to be more unionized and will enjoy kind of legacy legal protections, and then you have the more kind of informal gray zone economy where there'll be fewer protections, the gig economy, and so on. So I mean, but that was that is an effect of labor market changes. It's not, and it's something which the apps, it's what the app economy exploits, right? So, I mean, the whole business model of Uber was based on basically exploiting the, you know, kind of casting Uber drivers as self-employed contractors rather than employees, right? So it was based on kind of, um, you know, exploiting a legal loophole so well you know i mean again it just kind of indicates how fragile but i mean the lack of innovation but you know it's an important point about the lack of any kind of meaningful technological innovation there's a huge gap between self-driving cars and the uber system but at the same time kind of exploiting um you know legal loopholes rather than actually creating um genuine new value or creating new productive and technological processes yeah, I mean, sure. there's another there's another element of this though that it, unlike Uber, which is you know what, what's the decision which it's trying to get you to to change, and it's like, do you use another taxi or Uber? Do you use Uber or another mode of transport? I think with with delivery apps, the the thing that it's trying to make uh, is try the problem that it's trying to create. <laughs> rather than the solution it's trying to create because you know we we now know that that tech is about solutionism it's about creating problems and that to which you have solutions rather than creating solutions to existing problems that is a lot more efficient from the tech point of view i think it's like it's trying to make food and consumption at home when you when you don't want to cook a, a problem this is my kind of phenomenological reading i it's my personal experience which i'm and anecdotally trying to dress up into something more theoretical um <clears throat> yeah so it's like it's it is a, an attempt to make you n not want to go out to restaurants like de 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 deliberately it's trying to say you know that's a certain well, the weak, activity so if you're weak willed you might kind of fall for it but obviously most normal people will still go to restaurants so i mean i just don't uh, i just don't see it i'm not sure that's i'm not sure that's actually the case if you have the if you have the convenient option on the table you, you, often, I know, fall, like you if... often go for that but i mean we're going to come on to the question of um of what whether restaurants are um 
the kind of an important bit of infrastructure that should be maintained irrespective of, uh, of, of other questions. But before we do that, we should continue talking about the, about the labor question. Um, but they, but, but, right. Well, I mean, you know, like, I mean, the, again, I mean, they're exploiting, you know, they're exploiting pre-existing things to that extent. You could say they might be exacerbating, um, you know, exacerbating problems in the labor market, but really it's legal changes in the labor market that reflect kind of um, general capitalist sluggishness, which is a decades long problem, which these, you know, kind of companies are trying to exploit. And also, and also cheap money, right? So low interest rates, they've kind of benefited from the flood, the kind of tidal waves of cheap money over the last um, 30 or 10 years more specifically, but broader, you know, the larger historic period as well. Well, what you're saying, I mean, I don't find it untrue. It's It does sound to me a little bit like, well, that's just capitalism for you, um, which, while true, um, doesn't explain the specificities of what's going on here. And I think one thing we should pay attention to is the way that this is, uh, and the app economy as a whole, is a way of inducing greater informality. And of course, this goes beyond just the app economy, but to platforms and the platformization of work uh, across the board. And that ranges from, you know, highly paid uh, professionals, at least highly paid per hour professionals, uh, all the way down to, you know, the lowly delivery drivers and other other service providers um, who, you know, yeah, provide services via, via apps. And I think it's a little bit different to a previous phase of uh, industrial growth, where there was always the promise of formality, even if informality increased just because of a, of a growing uh, labor market, because of influx of people, whether from the countryside or women entering the labor market, that there was still informal labor, but there was always the hope of formalization. That old form of informality, I think, was more transparent, um, because either you were just a, a, a petty salesman going about um, selling from door to door, and you just encounter the market in a kind of naked sense. Um, or you're working for a boss um, in a very direct manner, like if you're a domestic worker, right, a maid or so on, um, and there's a naked domination. What's, what's particular, I think, about the... About the oh, dear, 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 what? dear. Naked domination and domestic workers, Alex. What's on your mind? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's sex, Phil. It's sex. It's always sex. Um, the the uh, But I, I think what is particular about our, our times is that, one, there's no promise of future formalization. That is not the tendency of things. And that what is sold is actually working for yourself. But that, of course, we know is not true because you're not working for your, yourself. It's a form of submission um, and, and, you know, domination by yeah, like- the platforms. So I think that's a little bit, I think what what is, as the app economy grows, not just the app economy, but as more and more becomes subject to kind of the plat- to platform capitalism, um, that uh, produces a change in labor relations effectively right um and so the labor it's market. sold it's sold as freedom right and so liz trust the brief you know the um the british prime minister who was ousted recently briefly in charge after boris johnson like last year you know she had this moronic line from a while back talking about how she represents the freedom loving delivery driving freedom fighters some nonsense like that <laughs> but she kind of she was trying to make kind of a pitch i suppose trying to indicate a common touch and trying to make the case that this kind of, um, you know, buzzy new sector of the service economy represented a kind of a get up and go, you know, a solid kind of new constituency for a new Thatcherite vision of the, um, you know, everyone being an entrepreneur. And I just don't think anybody buys it. 
you know like i mean i think you know some kind of columnists for newspapers might buy it some hardcore libertarians might buy it um supporters of liz trust might buy it but as ideology i just don't think it goes very far um so that's one thing the other thing is i mean you know there was a legal challenge to uber in europe which uber lost so they were forced to treat they've been forced to treat legally forced to treat um uber drivers as employees rather than as contractors which is again kind of chiseled away at their potential for profit and to um kind of close the legal space that they've been hitherto able to exploit right so i don't you know the idea that this is simply going to kind of um that this only goes in one direction isn't obvious to me i think you know the lockdown the post lockdown economy will involve more working from home for the laptop for the zoom classes and so that will kind of you know necessitate this kind of infrastructure of um the app economy will kind of be locked into place to a degree as a result of that but it's not i don't think it's as straightforward as or as one sided as you show alex or indicate but i mean it's precisely people aren't yeah. working from home they're working out do, providing services via apps you know that's what's happening no but i mean right no but the point being right that it will yeah but i mean the, well the laptop class has you know kind of extracted benefits from lockdown which means now they, they're based in, you know if you wanted to generalize perhaps they work three days a week in the office and two days a week from home and you need an app economy to sustain that right and so that is kind of being locked that is being locked in place as a result i think there's it's all it's quite an obvious point but there is another there is one group to whom this ideology is is quite appealing i mean and and that's that's the the bosses because it is less clear who if you're working in in a series of kind of you know series of gig jobs series of like individual relationships with with um it's not really clear who your boss is in this in this context it's you know is it the consumer they're the ones who kind of can give you bad reviews and can kind of do your performance management and all this sort of thing is it the the restaurant is it the platform um you know this it, it, it is appealing to um to the bosses to not have that kind of relationship very clear and no promise as you said alex of it being formalized and that's one thing about the gig economy it's very the nature of that kind of i guess the question is what sort of class consciousness does that does this foment it's obviously one mm. based on you know a dis a conflict with all these different sources but it's not quite so straightforward as to perhaps idealized like here's the boss here's the work here's the worker here's the the sorts of um asymmetries in their interests and here's the sorts of action that it creates so yeah, i think so there is there is you know it's not a particularly complex point but it's there is a reason why i guess just to wrap this all up why we would then potentially see more like app economy or like gig economy kind of pushes because it's a it's something in, in the interest of capital, basically. Yeah. George makes the point, I mean, we haven't mentioned it, but the dependence on reviews is um, as a kind of decentralized system of maintaining um, obedience, you know, I think is a very important part of it because you're relying, it's the boss basically relying on the kind of the pettiness, the petty cruelty and the whim. I mean, not it doesn't even need to be cruelty. It's essentially the benevolence of the consumer um, to kind of discipline the workforce for him, essentially. So even kind of the the kind of the moment of discipline is kind of outsourced um, to the consumer and the consumer, you can rely on the consumer, particularly I think in our day and age, you can rely on the consumer to be, um, you know, to be willful and um, self-important 
um, and um, potentially uh, very, yeah, essentially, yeah, to be potentially very vicious. We shouldn't we shouldn't have a go at people reviewing things too too harshly though, because if somebody if listeners do do, want do to drop give us a review, review say, yeah, five stars, do drop us a review. Yeah. Yeah, that's because if, 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 if someone gives us lower than five stars, um, I have to whip George, and and so he doesn't want that, and he, we don't. Nobody wants that. So make sure you get five might, stars. Some listeners might want it though. Some listeners might get quite excited by the thought. So you should don't, really don't encourage them, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, to to move on um, and to take this discussion forward, I think there is a question, and and now what now I want to return to the question of restaurants and bars and things like that because um and, and this is something which doesn't necessarily relate specifically to the app economy but it's something that is suggested by this discussion which is um whether we should be anti-monopolist as a consequence right so if um the incursion of tech into uh it, well into all areas of the economy um and obviously it, it's very clear that um there are moves, for example, Amazon trying to move into bricks and mortar grocery stores to replace uh, existing ones. Um, but it goes much wider than that. And within the app delivery um, economy, I think it, it does um, potentially force restaurants out of business because it gives them certainly a bad deal. Um, and this also goes hand in hand with a wider uh, tendency towards chains, franchising, and so on, which is itself also a reflection of um, very high um, real estate prices, um, which means that you ha- basically have to be a mega chain to be able to compete and to have a restaurant on the high shop, high street, and so on. So the question is, and my my inclination is, we should actually defend independent bars and restaurants. And I'm not uh, uh, an anti- uh, a kind of anti-monopolist i think in general in other sections of the economy i would defend um you know consolidation and large businesses large enterprises because they're more efficient they're easier to unionize um and ultimately they show you know socialism uh in in a nutshell um as i think lee phillips and michael rosorski very convincingly argued in their book on uh, you know the the uh people's republic of wall street or whatever it's called i think that's not quite the title but anyway um, walmart not wall street which listeners which listeners we did an episode when the book was published a while back now listeners can go to the back catalog to find it yeah, it's in the show notes so um but but with, with bars and restaurants i think i would defend independent bars and restaurants as essential civic infrastructure to meet to pass time uh to discuss you know the old cafe culture of the enlightenment but uh, brought forward to our times so I think this is this is kind of maybe you're sticking up for the petty bourgeoisie here, but I think there is a not necessarily anything wrong with that. But I think this is a way into what is one of the lines of political division between like different approaches to this question. At least I, I in my readings, my researches, that you do tend to have a kind of on the one hand this kind of nationalized um, delivery. Let's create a national food service. This idea, which you know, potentially appealing to to many people like would you like to have free delivery for life yes that's the that is a, a, appealing um perhaps particularly to a certain you know certain sort of urban pmc blah 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 but the kind of conservative position more is that well actually these apps they destroy community restaurants they reinforce atomization they kind of um you know all those things about like having the the different the artisan the artisanal like restaurateur who has um, is fending off on the one hand <clears throat> the chain restaurants, 
on the other hand the kind of the the delivery kind of eating into their their margins they're faced with the question do they want to go on to this or that platform um and you know lose something essential about their, their love of food that brings the delicious uh, meals to, to to their customers etc so i think there is something like this is one of the questions like how do you um like is there an is there another position than this kind of nationalized national food service on the one hand or like protect community restaurants on the other i mean i don't yeah i mean i just don't the uh, I can't see that there is any, you know, there's no possibility, I think, in a modern complex economy um, of eliminating um, small enterprises, right? The question is, though, the, um, and nor would it, you know, so to say it's not de- desirable from any kind of point of view. Um, it's a question of what, how, I think, you know, from the view, from a, from a political viewpoint, it's, you know whose interests are being served rather than um kind of abstract discussions of how you might kind of reorganize um you know swathes of the economy but yeah i mean i tend to agree i mean i think i remember there was a piece in jacobin a while back saying pubs should be nationalized which um i mean i had like an instinctive reaction against <laughs> For all sorts of reasons, I think, but I mean it did be, seem to me to speak to a kind of a strain of idiocy on the left. Um, oh, there was you know a piece in Tribune as well, the British kind of Jacobin sister publication, where they're talking about the need for a national food service as a kind of way of publicly organising all these kind of bottom-up local initiatives of providing, um, you know, providing food to people in need, um, and all of that. I mean, what's so your, that the latter one. What's your, what's your objection to nationalising pubs? Like to taking uh, like a Weatherspoons on every street corner, but well, there is a Weatherspoons on many street corners, so I don't know that that requires. Um, no, so I mean, I wouldn't mind. You know, like I think the old, I'd much prefer like um, locals to Weatherspoons. I think um, I don't want to. I don't want to kind of participate in the fashionable bashing of Weatherspoons, but um, the old, you know, like the the old kind of image of the publican, they had power or autonomy that was uh, they had where they had some degree of independence from the state in terms of they could choose who they could serve you know it was kind of um a sphere in which it was uh, there was the um possibility for a civil for a civic society a sphere of civic society and public participation outside of the private sphere that was also separate from uh, the state and that seems to me like you know as a general kind of um image of the way civil society should function that seems to me to be a better one than um, than the kind of uh, you know this kind of dour idea of um, a standardized a standardized pub service up and down up and down the land. Um, I just yeah, you I, know I mean it's absurd, frankly. I, I mean I I think it would yeah even if you if you're okay with nationalizing pubs, it should be the very last thing that gets nationalized. Um, <laughs> so you know that they that they yeah, preserve I mean, their independence. Yeah. Uh, and also well, just because it would be such a site for um site for for um behavior modification attempts from the state that you <laughs> you'd want them to I be already is though, right? I mean sure, that's the point sure, it but it is. would accentuate that that trend so uh, it's only look I mean could, it's not you know you I, don't, have a, I don't think it's possible to take it as a serious proposition that's what I'm saying you could have a nationalized a really pub but pubs but today it would be like Low, only low alcohol or no alcohol beers and it would be yeah. very it'd be a very unappealing place i mean if it copies weatherspoons carpets then it might be good but that would be the only funny, good thing so about it i bought the uh, this was about 
maybe two weeks ago, I saw um, behind the bar in the fridge, I saw a bottle of um, of a brew dog bottle called Nanny State. And I thought, ah, you know, that's you know, that sounds kind of intriguing. Let's see, you know, like what brew dog are up to. And um, sure enough, like the brew dog Nanny State is a low alcohol or 0.5% or something <laughs> absurd alcohol beer. And so I thought like, you know, my when I saw that label, I thought, oh, they're kind of, you know, it's going to be a high alcohol, a, a high strength kind of drink kicking back against the nanny state. But in fact, the irony goes in entirely the opposite direction. They're flaunt, you know, they're ironically flaunting their conformity with the new kind of low alcohol trend. So, so many yeah, years, it's this modern stupidity in the brew dog nanny state beer. It would have been so much better if it was just a bottle of meths and it was just like, okay, we're we're really going to show it to the to the state here, you know, drink this and you'll go blind. I mean, actually, you won't if you drink enough ethanol with methanol, it, it kind of evens itself out. But they weren't willing to take that chance. They weren't willing yeah. to tap into that market. As, as I'm looking forward to Carnival starting tomorrow, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. So to zoom out a bit, I think we should ask the question uh, that as tech grows ever larger and other sectors become, uh, or tech inserts itself into other sectors, to the extent that everything is so techified that there's no real boundary anymore, everything becomes tech. And this applies to retail, to to wholesale, to industry, to agriculture, to personal services, everywhere you look. Um, It is uh, techified in one way or another. And I think it might be worth then trying to understand and spell out what the political positions on this are. Not what our political positions are, you've heard enough of that, but to try to understand sort of the lay of the land politically with regard to tech um, and, and uh, or, or indeed whether there even is uh, any kind of outright political contestation um, on the grounds of, uh, of tech and in what direction does it point? So, I mean, I think one, the first question to ask then is, why and how long do capitalists keep supporting these businesses that seem to invert all the kind of traditional logic? You know, I mean, if they're trying to kind of make things more efficient, food produce, food production or um, urban transport or whatever, you know, the logic is, well, it should be profitable if it's going to meet the criteria of being efficient. And they're not profitable. So why do capitalists keep on pouring money into them? And that made sense, I suppose, in the kind of topsy-turvy world of cheap money. So you could burn through billions in the era of low interest rates. But as interest rates keep on creeping up, right? How how much do they how much do they keep on plowing into these companies that don't turn a profit? And that I think is a genuine. You know, what are they buying into? So I guess you know, the, I guess to a certain extent, they some of them bought into the the vision of the. Of driverless cars, of AI and cars fusing together in the kind of dystopian Uber future, but that seems to be for you know kind of that doesn't seem to be imminent. So what are they buying into when they keep on pouring money into these um, into profitless companies? I think it's partly the the idea of disrupting the kind of the profit motive. Like traditionally, you know, you have to kind of if you want a capitalist business, you want to have to you know make money, and the capitalist becomes the rational miser, and it, you know it's very heavy to be kind of that kind of capitalist but imagine if you were to kind of disrupt that and flip that narrative and instead it's about losing money it's about freedom it's about flexibility i mean that's quite an appealing thing if i'm a venture capitalist to say well actually i don't need to just be somebody who expresses my my class interest i can actually 
operate in an entirely new way and I can do something a little bit different. And I think that is quite potentially quite appealing. You've got, you've got, you know, the Gates Foundation and you've got kind of enormous kind of Silicon Valley, you know, philanthropy on the scale of Silicon Valley, industrial scale philanthropy. They can do that if they want to throw money away, right? I'm not sure. Sh- but it's know, not the same. I, I mean, the, that's throwing money away. But it's like if you, if you burn a million dollars, that's art. If you sink however many billion into an app that just loses it, it that's right. art at a greater scale. I take your money. I take your point, George. Uh, you know, there, there is the Fed, you know, they're, they're buying into the ideology of disruption, but at the end point, they still have to make money. Right. I think, I think the... it makes sense if there's a, if, if you see it as a trade-off between accumulation and domination, right. That they are maybe willing to lose money, but on aggregate capital gets a greater stranglehold or this fraction of capital, if you want to see it that way, gets a greater stranglehold over industries, which were previously not amenable to disruption. Yeah, but they still um, have to make money at the end of it. Well, right? but, they the will, no, but, it... They, but they can make money, but the problem is they have to displace all the other competitors first. And then it's a, it's a kind of a question of a race of who can see to see who can sustain that uh, longer, right? Uber, well, Uber, which we've discussed before, um, might not even make money if it displaces or if it gets rid of all the taxis uh, in the in the country and that Uber was betting actually on um, becoming you know fully driverless cars and that would be the way that it would start to profit we don't know um, but it could well be with for example delivery apps for for food and so on uh, that they start to make money once enough of the economy has been enough of the you know kind of um, you know, what's a you know hospitality sector has been oriented back around uh, the provision to people's domiciles rather than um, people turning up at at bricks and mortar establishments. Maybe then it starts to to pay off. I think it's I think it's clear that that none of us has a compelling answer. Really, I mean, the thing and that kind of like the compelling answer to why there's so much heavy investment in these things, other than that. There must be either the potential to make long ter- to make profit in the long term, and or the potential to to destroy or to like to reform a big industry in a new way, and that's you know that is part of the creative destruction of capitalism, and there has to be some like yeah, but you know there has to be something to in money. that, but it's almost like a negative explanation because there isn't a um a more well, like that, a, a more like obvious say, one or, or destroying labor potentially, but that seems so which I is think I think a another part, important part of it, yeah. I don't. I'm not sure they think so directly in those terms. Like, um, so I mean, I'd so I'd hazard. You know, I think so. You might see, you know, their margin gets eroded as um, as interest rates continue to creep up. Right, cheap money is no. You know, you get less and less money to kind of burn in these things. Um, and I think, but I think George is probably right when he says, you know, it's the ideology of disruption itself that's so compelling, and the indication of how disruptive you or this. The kind of the measure of how disruptive you are is how much money you're willing to burn to achieve this kind of fabled dominance or the fabled point at which the company finally becomes profitable. And so the war of, you know, kind of there is the financial war of attrition, I suppose, for the financial backers of some of these companies. Um, But they must be mesmerized by some vision that they're willing to spend so much money on them. But I imagine, like I say, you know, that becomes a different calculation the more expensive money becomes. All right, so um, we'll leave this here. I'll point you, listener, if you haven't listened to it already, uh, the final episode of last year's Reading Club um, on, uh, well, which in, in broad terms is on techno-feudalism, but we discussed some of the, the questions around labor and technology um, in, in some depth there. So I would uh, point you to that. Um, and then I think 
I'm curious um, because Phil raised the question earlier. Um, he took a position on it. I'm not entirely convinced and uh, I'd be interested to hear what you listeners think of, of this. Is the dream of freedom sold by the app economy appealing? And does it work as an ideology? Or did it, perhaps, and maybe it works no longer? I'm interested to hear what you think uh, just from your own experiences, um, whether you think your friends and colleagues and people in your neighborhood and, and beyond um, feel that this, uh, the dream sold by the app economy of working for yourself, of being your own boss, um, is something that holds appeal for a lot of people, and whether that has a promise of a future, this sense of popular entrepreneurialism mediated by platforms. Anyway, let us know. Uh, we will be back with more next week. Uh, catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.